When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm gonna call it now. It's one past seven here on your Monday evening on SENZ with Ricardo Ball through till 10 o'clock for you tonight and uh, got a whole bunch of stuff coming up uh, between now and then including at the Oki, our dance show is back tonight from nine till 10 uh, with uh, the two Bens, uh, the big rig himself, Ben Robb, and uh, Big Rig 2, Ben Francis. Um, so we'll have lots of darts chat for you between 9 and 10 this evening. Then we go to a, a new tennis show with uh, hosted by Brett Phillips out of SEN Australia. Before then, though, we're going to talk AFL with Justin Nelson. You might know him better as a basketball commentator, but he used to be an AFL commentator before he moved to these shores. I know nothing about AFL, uh, so I thought with the grand final coming up this weekend, it might be good to... As the as the athletes like to say, get some learnings in uh, about the sport, so I can try and make head nor tail of the grand final. So we'll do that around eight thirty. We're also going to talk to uh, one of our Ranfurly Shield uh, winners this weekend. I don't know if you're in Hawke's Bay, you'll probably tune out. But uh, out of Wellington, Xavier Numia is going to join us, the prop, uh, to talk about what that meant to him. Been a St. Pat's Town old boy and uh, winning uh, the Ranfurly Shield for. Wellington. So we'll talk to him uh, at 8 o'clock. Uh, we'll also catch up with Kevin here on some Heartland stuff as well. This hour we're going to catch up in West Island with Pete Fairburn, uh, talk about everything sporting coming from that side of the world. We'll catch up with Hamish Bidwell shortly as well to talk Bledis Low Cup and Hawks Bay losing the Shield. But before we do any of that, news came out today that Winston Reid is going to retire from international football after the Sunday match against the Socceroos at Eden Park. Uh, and I thought, well, we've got to, got to get somebody on to talk about this. And I thought, who better than to get a bloke who's played alongside him at the 2010 World Cup and then carried on being involved in the Whites and has now coached him. Uh, so it gets, uh, I guess, a unique view of who Winston Reid is. That person, of course, is former All-White Rory Fallon, who joins us now. Thanks for coming on and giving us some time, Rory. How are you? How are you? 
How's it going? Thanks for having me. Mate, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Um, uh, obviously, the news came out today that, that Winston is going to retire from international footy after Eden Park. Uh, you've known him for a, for a long time, mate. I mean, obviously, you know, after the header against Bahrain, you got us to South Africa, and then this uh, fresh-faced Maori kid who had been playing in Denmark <laughs> of all places turns up, mate. What was what was the initial reaction to him? Yeah, well, like, well, who's this guy? <laughs> Where the hell's this guy ever been hiding? Um, yeah, that's what it was like because uh, we uh, first met him at um, North Harbour Stadium, but just before we went away to the World Cup and stuff like that. Um, his first training was at North Harbour Stadium and we were like, man, he's, he looks more mouldy than us. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was me, Jeremy and uh, Leo. We were the three mouldies in the team. And they were like, man, he's like proper, <laughs> looks way more mouldy than us. <laughs> oh, the mouldy Viking. We thought he was like a European. Like We thought it was like when he was coming in, he thought he was going to be a European and he, he showed up and he was like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> Uh, mate, he's, uh, he's a beast of a player. I mean, he, physically, he's so, so imposing. Yeah. I know you're a big man, but how did you find it when you first started going up against him in training and things like that? Well, he was a young buck at the start, so he was like he wasn't. He was on his uh, he was on his upward upward uh, trajectory, you know. Um, so he wasn't as big and strong as he was once he started getting into the Premier League. He just every time I'd see him, he'd get bigger and bigger, like just like more powerful, you know, so kind of the evolution of him, he just got stronger and stronger as he, as his career went on. Um, but yeah, he's an absolute powerhouse, eh? Mm. How did he, um, when you first, you know, met the uh, the Mouldy Viking, I guess you'd like to call him, um, uh, in North Arthur Stadium before South Africa, how did he, how did he fit in with the squad? What sort of bloke was he off the bat? Oh, he was very quiet. Like, to be fair, when you, when you meet Winston, he's very quiet and, um, uh, unassuming you know he's um but once you get to know him he's proper loud and like <laughs> um cracking jokes and stuff like that you know but it took us a while to uh to you know to get to know him hey eh? he's uh he's like an onion you know he's got a lot of layers to him um so once we started um getting to know him though he's um it was pretty much the uh moldy boys pretty much as a little click you know in that gang <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I think he kind of felt comfortable in that as well. Well, I mean, you know, you said that once you get to know him, he was quite loud. Uh, given that you tend to be the maestro of the group, you're always got a guitar. Um, how's, how's the singing voice, mate? What's his go-to? His singing voice, oh, I, he tries to stay away from the singing. I think he's uh, more of the uh, just watching everyone, you know, he's that type of guy. Um but yeah, he, uh, he likes to try and wind me up, eh? Just, but um, I feel like I wind him up more than he does me. <laughs> <laughs> what's the uh, what's what's the angle, Rory? What's the angle? What do you mean? Oh, what's the, the angle? What, what's the angle for the wind up? Does he go the same way every time? Oh, is... we're always just making fun of each other. Always making fun of each other and stuff like that. Just from from day one, like it was more me at the start because I was like trying to get him into the group and get him involved in that and. Uh, around that time, it was a lot of uh, Mickey taking out of each other. You know, it was a constant, like, with that team, um, you know, we were constantly joking and laughing and making fun of each other and pranking each other. And, um, yeah, we, um, we nearly fell out one day because my, my uh, pranks were going too far on him. <laughs> uh, you, been... Yeah, yeah, he lost his head and I was like, okay, okay, we're good, we're good. We're good, we're good. That would have been a scary yeah, experience, we're good, we're good. I would have thought. 
Yeah, yeah, the soul cup, proper soul cup. <laughs> he might tell you about it one day. <laughs> Maybe. We'll wait for the book. We'll wait for the book. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, he played with you guys at that World Cup, and then just after that, he got the big move to West Ham, and he went from strength to strength there. Uh, I mean, yeah. you, you played uh, at championship level with Swansea and, and, and things. I mean, did you see how good a player he could be when he was that 21-year-old coming into camp? Uh, World Cup, he was like how, um, you know, when you could just see the class, you know, you could, it was like a Rolls Royce, you know, just a great athlete and great physique and great with the ball. And he got brought up into a, you know, into a great system in Denmark. You know, they really, um, they really know how to play football over there. You know, they bring them up really, really well. Um, so he was, he was, you know, you could tell, you could see it. And then when he scored that goal, obviously, like he just, got that move and he just went from strength to strength, you know, and he's, uh, he deserves everything he gets, you know, he's, he's worked hard, man. He's, and he's had to go, go through a lot of stuff. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he struggled a lot with injuries. We know that he, he played nearly 200 games for West Ham, played a handful of games for Brentford, obviously went and played MLS for a little while as well. Um, where do you think his legacy sits, you know, in the pantheon of New Zealand footballers that have played at the top level? I mean, I, you know, I look at him and think, you know, Ryan Nelson, Chris Wood, him, Winton—they're kind of all in that same sort of sort of region. Where do you where do you put him? I put him way up at the top for me personally. Obviously, for me, Winton will always be number one, um, just because he was kind of my hero when I was growing up. Him and Steve Sumner, you know, they were my heroes growing up. Um, and obviously, he won European trophies, Jeremy. So, I think you you got to to be the top of the top. You got to be, you know, you got to win a European trophy. And I think Winston is obviously top, but Winston's definitely, I would say, second for me personally. Yeah, yeah, he achieved a lot in his career. He could have achieved so much more if only it wasn't for those injuries. I know he's he's calling time on his All Whites career, and I know he's been based in the Middle East. Do you know what he's doing in terms of a club gig from here out, or, or is that it? entirely for his career do you think uh we haven't spoke too much on i i you know i i, I personally want him to continue on getting you know playing you know but i think i think it's i think he's seen this um i think it was more the world cup the world cup was the one that kept them like it was a bit like me when i retired i was i was hanging in there to try and get to a world cup and i think with that with another four more years to wait i think He's thought to himself, you know, I don't need to put my body under the strain. And obviously he wants to be around his family as well, you know, so I, I don't blame him. He's had an absolutely awesome innings um, with with the game and he's been away from his family a lot as well, you know, so he's had to sacrifice a lot. And I think it's I think it's time for him to just, you know, hang up those boots and, and continue on uh, with his uh, uh, academy that he started up a few years ago. And um, yeah. I'm just uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing what happens. I, I was saying to him, oh, what, you know, are you going to get into coaching or what? And he's like, oh, nah, nah, nah. But I was um, I'm hoping he can uh, stay in the game somehow. Yeah, I mean, it'd be good to have him. It feels I like... think he's got a lot to give. He's, he's got a lot to give. You know, he's got a lot of experience, and I think he would be um, a great, um, just a, just an awesome example. And you know, for the kids to to you know to watch him, you know, be a coach and. That's what I would love for him, but obviously he's got his own plans, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, we have seen a little bit of that where he's been involved in all-whites camps when he hasn't been playing, right? Um, what's that What's that role being been like for him? Because uh, I assumed that that was going to lead to some sort of coaching role. Yeah, well, obviously when he comes in, he's like a mentor to these young lads, you know? Um, he's what, what an inspiration to be, you know, 
touching shoulders with a top Premier League player and a World Cup player. You, yeah. It doesn't get better than that, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I just think it'd be such a huge waste for him to come out of the game. So uh, um, um, selfishly for me, I'm hoping that he stays in the game, you know? Yeah. yeah. In some aspect. No, mate, it'd be great. be great to keep him in the game, especially if he can have some sort of connection to New Zealand and continue that as well. Exactly. Hey, Rory, exactly. I, know, I know you've got to go. You've got a training to go to, mate. So I'll just, I'll just ask you one last question. Uh, as a man who I know doesn't like a shirt all the time, who looks better without a shirt on, you or Winston? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he's, he's in good shape. He's been looking after himself, so... We'll have to wait and see. I'm 40. He's uh, he's still he's still younger than me. So, uh, but I'm I'm in good shape, mate. I'm uh, Danny's a uh, he's uh, making me work in the mornings, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, Danny's an absolute machine. So that's, to be fair, in the gym, he makes us uh, get up early in the morning and uh, do our gym session and stuff like that together. So, yeah, I, I reckon I could hold my own. Nowhere to hide, eh, with Danny? Nah, nowhere to hide, man. He's a machine. <laughs> Go well, Rory. Great uh, great to chat with you, mate. And best of luck for that first game in, uh, uh, against the Aussies, eh? Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. Take care. There you go. That is Rory Fallon with us out of Australia, getting ready for a training session. The All Whites taking on the Australians in two games this week. The last of those is the last for Winston Reid Sunday at Eden Park. Make sure you get along if you can. It is 12 past seven. When we come back, Hamish Bidwell's going to join us to talk a media watch and we'll catch up with Pete Fairburn with his view from the other side of the ditch before eight as well. 17 past seven here on SENZ Extra Time. Joining us now is... Uh, out of the out of the Hawks, but I was going to say out of Shield Country, Hamish. I can't say that anymore. How are you feeling about the weekend? <laughs> oh, a little mixed. Obviously, I'm a Wellingtonian who mm. chooses not to live in Wellington and wouldn't ever like to go back to visit, let alone live. But I still have Wellingtonian in, in me, and still a few players in that Wellington team who I dealt with a bit. I sort of look at the way they celebrated a guy like Jackson Garden Bishop, who's New Zealand rugby days are probably behind him hasn't quite cracked it at super level, a tolerable NPC player. And this is, you know, it's a great highlight, something to treasure. Yeah, it is something to treasure, you know, and, and it kind of has felt, I don't know what you've thought, but it, it has felt that this season has just been a stretch too far for Hawks Bay at times. I mean, they struggled against Mid-Canterbury. They had to come from behind against both counties and Harbour to retain the shield by two points each time. I mean, it felt like it was slipping, didn't it? Yeah, it's like playing a series of grand finals and if you're also trying to wager a tilt at the title at the same time and resting guys in between shield defences and that kind of thing, it really does wear on you. So I think people here in Hawke's Bay are proud. Mm. Um, They loved having it here. It meant a lot to the community. You know, we're not a super rugby base, so this is is as good as rugby gets in this part of the world and, and there's a connection between the public and the team and a real pride in the shield. So... I think everyone respects what Wellington did. It wasn't like, there was no Matthew Reynolds type situation where the shield was ripped from Hawke's Bay's grasp unfairly, you know what I mean? Like they legit lost it and, you know, it's been a good run and people are sad to see it go, but content with a, a good era. And it was a great era, great era for Hawke's Bay rugby, mate. But I mean, it comes, you know, it's hard to bounce back from that. And this this weekend, arguably even a bigger game because it's the battle for the, uh, the uh, rights to be called the Bay for another year. There's only no, 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 no. That's, that's not even a competition. I, I was born in Tauranga. No, they are the Bay of Plenty. We are Hawks Bay. There's no the Bay. We, we, this is Hawks Bay. Yeah, no, 
No? Well, the Hawks Bay. No, no, I know. Yeah, but I they, know why know, people... There's a lot of... So I'm slightly pedantic about, about the written word yeah. and the spoken word, less so, but the written word. <laughs> this, these places called the Waira Rapper and the Hawks Bay, they don't exist. There's one rapper in Hawks Bay and... That's that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you know, I, I've just talked to a lot of people. I, I I spent a bit of time in Tauranga and did a bit of work for Bay of Plenty Rugby, uh, and it's I I never noticed it so much there. But man, the amount of people who are Hawks Bay rugby fans that take the being the Bay so seriously, it it almost feels like when I talk to those Hawks Bay fans, that means more than anything else is winning that game. Well, there's no one from uh, the Bay. The, the, the Bay of Plenty Bay, who's actually from the Bay, so they don't really care what it's called. And, <laughs> and here, yeah, well, we've got the landed gentry, six generations deep, you know, high country farmers and all that kind of malarkey. They're very proud of, of their province. And I used to hate them at university. All these people who came down to Massey from Hawke's Bay and were going about how great it was. Well, if you like it so much, why don't you clear off? But when I moved here in the early 2000s, I was like, far out. How good is Hawke's Bay? I used to go around everywhere and go, hey, Hawke's Bay's really good. So... I shouldn't um, criticise. No, you shouldn't, mate. No, shouldn't. Oh, that's all right. We'll, we'll park that for now, mate. We should talk. You, you've already mentioned it in passing. Uh, the All Blacks uh, went over the Aussies on Thursday night in Melbourne. Um, and, of course, there was some controversy in that match, not least of all the uh, call at the end by the French referee. Um, what was your take on on the whole situation? So my, my match preview for Rugby Pass mm. was I hope that the two teams play well and that one of them is able to decide the outcome. I would hate for us to be um, debating whether a certain laws fit for purpose or to be wondering if why Matthew Raynaud decided the outcome. And I think the headline was, will Raynaud be the star of the show? And it turned out that he was. I mean, that's far out. Have you seen one of those before? I, I certainly haven't. I've seen a few games of footy in my time. I've mm. never seen that decision given. Um, I thought it was scandalous. It was shades, of course, of his involvement in the 2017 Lions series where he, you know, cocked it up at the end when the All Blacks should have been awarded a kickable penalty after a kickoff. Um, yeah, I just sort of left a really sour taste. And obviously, you know, let's be fair, I was barracking for Australia. Yeah. And, you know, as Ian Foster went first, more and more puce in the box as the comeback sort of, gathered momentum and then they roared past them like you know I was pretty pumped I was watching with a mate of mine and he was looking at me going you're such a disgraceful New Zealander I'm ashamed <laughs> to be your friend <laughs> can you not you look like you're going to cry every time the All Blacks score and now look at you you know so I was I was pretty gutted with the outcome but like gutted from a rugby perspective because I just think that especially Australian rugby because prime time on a Thursday no competition with NRL AFL you had a lot of non-rugby watchers tuning in, wondering, you know, I'll give rugby a chance again. I haven't watched it for a while. And, and decisions like that sort of confirmed their worst fears. And it was a, it was a whistle-happy game. Was it 24 penalties and, you know, and a handful of yellow cards? It confirms people's worst suspicions about rugby being over-officiated and, and, and hard to watch. And, and, that, and in that sense, you know, people's views are, are, have been realised because it was a really, I thought, a game that the players should have decided and the referee had too much involvement. Mm. It was an interesting one because I agree that I've never seen that uh, call be made before in uh, in a game of footy that I've ever seen. That said, I didn't think it was a bad call. I, I think, you know, I think um, staff actually went through and timed all the different penalty uh, through the match, you know, kicking the touch, and the Aussies were quite blatant about taking their time and trying to kill things. 
if anything, you know, given your stance, uh, it actually took the focus off the game, didn't it, Annie and Foster, that, that call? Because, I mean, the All Blacks were up 31-13. I nearly went to bed. I was all right. Oh, this is this is done. <laughs> this is in the this. You know, I mean, we should be talking about how the All Blacks threw that lead away, shouldn't we? Well, it depends. Like it depends. I, mean, I can think back to a Bledisloe at Suncorp Stadium, uh, um, or the Old Lang Park in 1996, where the All Blacks were down all day, and I think it was Frank Bunt scored at the death. And you know, and you were as an All Blacks fan, you fight like the All Blacks are never beaten. Eat that Australia. You can never beat us. We're never beaten. And all that, as I say. And, and so there was a shade of that, you know. Bernard Foley, you dopey bugger, kick the ball out. You know what I mean? Mm. You had plenty of time to still waste at the line out, and then you win the line out, and you fart around, and then you kick it out. Like, he just should have kicked it out. And, and ultimately, all the whinging, all the official complaints to World Rugby, if Foley kicks the ball out, the Wallabies, I assume, win the game. And that's on him. He probably had opportunities to do it. He didn't do it. You can argue about whether he thought time was on or off. But in terms of the All Blacks, yeah, it was pretty shabby. And I think it's good in the sense that there's been some injury stuff because I think it's time to, to change things up. I just, I've just been critical of Rico Iwani a lot for not passing. Well, if you watch the game, he can't pass. And he certainly can't make any good decisions on defence, which exposes Caleb Clark. So let's talk about whether someone like Tuivasa Sheck deserves to come into midfield. I'd play Geordie Barrett there myself. I don't rate Tuivasa Sheck at all. I don't think he's got anything to offer. Certainly, he's not a passer, he's not a kicker, and I don't know how well he reads rugby defences. So, were the All Blacks that bad? Just sloppy. But, you know, they had disruptions, Simbins, Kane off, uh, Havili off. Sort of, they got their excuses. I think, ultimately, they'll be pretty relieved to win, as, as shambolic as it was at times. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, you know, I did a show on uh, Sunday with Steve Devine and um, we did two hours on this and, and, and you know, uh, one of the things that kept coming up was like, you know, uh, if people are criticising uh, Renal for that that call, the time-wasting call, um, but really should be criticising him for the Darcy Swain non-send-off because that would have, you know, meant that that call did, probably didn't even happen. Um, so what was, your, what was your take on that? I mean, I, that looked... I think Steve Devine said that is the most thuggish thing I've seen in a rugby field in about four or five years because it was so deliberate. And everything he did while he was on the park was thuggish and he was a walking penalty and that was grim and he deserved to go for the for the duration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, one of the issues that I... So that's, again, that thing that brasses me off about rugby. So when you watch a game, you can tell quite clearly that the referee is getting a lot of information in the air from the TMO and from the two assistant referees. And and we, we are very eager to try and produce a perfect game and we have the benefit of replay to try and get decisions right. Now, that's, that's the equivalent of a cricket howler, a guy who nicks the ball into his pad and is given LBW. Like that, you can't look at that footage and not think that's a red card. But I I, I sometimes want to broaden the debate out because I think VAR's a bit of a shambles in football. The DRS and cricket's no good. We talk about the NRL bunker a lot. I won't even get on to instant replay in the NFL, which is just, you know, diabolical to me. So I don't know whether you think it's right that we have this much technology and this this many voices and a referee there, but I don't think it's improving the product much at all, do you? Especially when decisions like that, which are so clear-cut, don't get given. Well, the, I think the thing that we've all been sold on as sports fans is this technology will stop wrong decisions being made. 
And you go, okay, yeah. well, I'm on board with that. If that means, you know, 90% of the wrong decisions we have now in our game over the season uh, are now made correctly, then bang, what's wrong with that? But we're still getting wrong decisions, even though we've got all the technology, which is just absolutely baffling. The best refereeing performance I've seen this year was Angus Gardner in the first Wallaby, uh, first Springboks All Blacks test. And regardless of the result, the right team won, and both teams were given the same opportunity to succeed. And he, you could tell he was getting a lot of advice from um, the ARs and the TMO, and he ignored them. He had control of the match. And by him having control of the match and not doing daft things, the players actually behaved themselves. Mm. And grubby things didn't happen. He wasn't complaining. I think by... Um, diluting the authority of the referee, we create more disharmony between the teams and more grizzling from players. And I think that's a, another consequence of the fact that people don't believe he's the guy in charge. Yeah, and that's a that's a solid point because you, you do get that. It's like, you know, when the VAR first came into football, all of a sudden you had half a dozen players running at the referee every every time making a rectangle with their fingers going, go upstairs, go upstairs, go and have a look. And all they want is the referee, who they believe is in charge of the match, to go to the monitor and make the call. They don't want it coming from Stockley Park or wherever it comes on the EPL. They want yep. a referee to call it and not be given advice in his ear, right? Yep, exactly. Exactly. So how does right now look at Darcy Swain's thing and go, oh, it's all right, it's the yellow. I mean, that's farcical, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I don't, I mean, like, yeah, especially the way he read. confidence among the players, doesn't it? It Mm. it makes them feel there's perhaps a free-for-all on and we can get away with whatever because this bloke's not even up to it. Yeah, well, that's what it looked like. I I, I saw that and I was like, oh, man, he's in trouble. He's gone. That's it. He's done. And then when he didn't get, you know, when he got a yellow, I was like, hang on, how the hell's that happened? Uh, So, no, you're 100% correct on that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if what happens to Renal because, I mean, he is, I, th- I believe he is the number one ranked French referee and um, they, they're hosting some tournament next year, Hamish, that I imagine they think he's going to be, uh, um, you know, officiating at. I'm sure he met his World Rugby KPIs and the referees assessor in the stand gave him uh, double ticks, perhaps even some smiley faces on his report card, so I'm sure he's sweet because by the letter of the law, you know, because that's what everyone's going on about, you know, empathy and a feel for the game and all that. And you can't have it both ways. We either want a black and white game or we want a grey game. And so when when a referee makes a decision which is fair and legit, but we don't like it, we go, oh, we've got to have more feel for the game. And then when they let things go, oh, you can't have feel for the game, it's knock on. You know what I mean? So, like, <laughs> we want it every way, don't we? We do. We do, depending on which way it goes. I mean, I mean yeah, I, I, it's easy to say when it goes your way, but we did have a lot of people uh, saying, you know, if that had gone against us, I would have understood it. Um, I'm not quite sure that that would have been the reality. In another 10 or 15 seconds, given all the time that is wasted in a, in a match with resets and water breaks and all sorts of carry-on, I don't think anyone at home would have... Like, we went sitting there on the edge of us going, kick them all! You know, how long does he want? You know, we, we didn't... It didn't occur to us that it was an egregious amount of time. So... Yeah. I mean, how do you think the All Blacks are tracking? Like, I mean, obviously that was the discussion for months. It's been put to bed. But how do you think they're going? Oh, not well. Not well. I think... <laughs> I, 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 I do think we've seen a slight improvement, but I don't think it's enough of an improvement. Should we say that? Um, They've yeah. shorted up the Type 5, so that gives you scope there. The loose forwards are still in a bit of disarray. Um, midfield's unconvincing. Like, the thing about... Barrett to 12, Geordie Barrett, would be Jordan could play 
2015, like we've had this thing with guys like Israel Dag and Ben Smith and now Jordan, we we get wing, uh, fullbacks to do a job for us on the wing, but they're really not a wing's backside, and they mm. don't they're not afforded the opportunity to play to the best of their ability. They're okay, like Jordan. Jordan needs the space and time of playing fullback to do his thing. Like a guy like Sebu Reese, he can get the ball on the right wing and, and tight corner and with nothing on and make something happen. So a quick feet, bit of a chip and chase, like good little dynamic play. Whereas Jordan, I think to me, needs space and time. And he just never afforded that particularly at wing. So if, if, if that, if the Havili, no, the Tapai thing and the, and the Havili thing help put Jordan at fullback, then I'll be in favour of that. Because I just think, as with Yuani at centre, I think we want to, as we're moving forward, try and get guys playing in the right spot. That would be a start as far as the All Blacks development is concerned. Yeah, you're not wrong, mate. You're not wrong. Good stuff, Hamish. Thanks for coming on, mate. Always good to chat. Are you United back? What do you reckon? Oh, well, mate, if, if we get the opportunity to, to play a game, I mean, God. Yes. We've had the last two, yeah, two games postponed it, because some... Um, some old bird popped her clogs. I mean, I don't know. Um, didn't make any I sense to me. I don't want to be harsh too, but a 96-year-old woman in ill health dies. Like, it's not that shocking, is it? I stand to be correct. Good <laughs> Great servant. But... Yeah. Fair yeah, fair dinkum. I think is 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 the is the call. Uh, I, I did see. I quite I quite liked a because uh, uh, the queues apparently are, are, are quite long like about nine, ten hours long to shuffle past the coffin and somebody said, just uh, save yourself nine hours, go to the local cemetery and mourn someone else that you didn't actually know. Um, you know, that would be probably be, probably a better way to spend your time. But there you go. Well, I think if we've you digressed. David Beckham's management group, would you get a bonus for the great idea of yours for him to stay for 12 hours to see you or do you think he did it off his own bat? I think he did it off his own bat, to be honest. Yeah. Um, because I think... If he didn't want to do it, he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't need the publicity. Yeah, he could have taken the Philip Schofield route and come in at the back door and just said, oh, hey, I'm here. Thank yeah, exactly. Goodness. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, right. yeah. I'll let exactly. you go, mate. I can see you winding me up. Thank you very much. Good to chat again. Mate, always good to chat, Hamish. Always good to chat. Uh, I do need to get to Pete Fairburn over in Aussie, though, so we'll do that next. Go on, bro. All right. Have a good evening. Yeah, you too, brother. Hamish Bidwell there with us. It is uh, 27 away, as I do maths quickly in my head, from eight. Nick, I'm sorry. I'm so, you know exactly I what I want to do. I know. You I know exactly. What I told you two times. I know. And then you still continue. I understand, if but you, he was just about Nick, to get him for two seconds. Nick, no, 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 no way. Mate, Nick. that just cost us. Nick, can, 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 can I speak? Yeah? Can I speak? I tell you, you first, because you are the captain. Yes. I tell to you ten. Then I, 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 I warning him. I say, if you don't play immediately, I will give a strength. So that's not fair what you did at the end. You, you just run the time. So, and you know exactly, if you think I'm not capable to give a scrum and to turn a ball, you make a mistake. Yeah. So now you know it. It is uh, 22 away from 8. We head to the uh, other side of the ditch, calling West Island. Pete Fairburn uh, joins us now. And Pete, of course, uh, you guys don't care about rugby, so you'll be wanting to talk AFL, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, just bringing the uh, the PTSD back from Thursday night, playing that little audio clip there, uh, Ricardo. Look, um, what an interesting few days, and, and, and it's probably for the best that you didn't speak to me straight after full-time of that match, but it, it's been a really interesting uh, few days to reflect on what occurred and to, to try and take, I guess, a reasonable stance. But, yeah, there's no hiding the disappointment this side of the Tasman. Uh, yeah, we do feel like we were robbed of a, a test match, which, you know, we felt we did extraordinarily well to come back and be right on the cusp of winning. Yeah, I mean, to be honest... I think, in a way, 
it's done uh, Ian Foster a favour because otherwise the entire uh, conversation will be about how did the All Blacks blow a 31-13 lead? I nearly went to bed at that point, Pete, because I thought it was done. And made understandable. Um, and, and you know what? I've, conversely, I did hear someone say today, maybe it's done the Wallabies a favour in the long term because it's helped keep Ian Foster in the job. So <laughs> it depends which side of the fence you sit on where, where you look at that. But look, I, I think although you, know, you let the bus settle and, and the, the anger dissipates and you remind yourself it's just a game, and it was a fantastic game of footy, right? Mm. Nearly a point a minute, great comebacks, two lead changes in the last five minutes. Um, it, it was real end-to-end stuff in a, a sold-out stadium in, a, in a, a city that isn't a traditional rugby city. So that was great to see. And there's so many more positives than negatives to take from the game. Um, but I, I thought the way Ian Foster conducted himself post-game was, was pretty unbecoming, um, you know, referring to a clear-cut decision and, and, and really um, you know, trying to, to make out like it was a very straightforward thing that you'd expect to see happen on a rugby field when the majority of us have never seen anything like that happened before. I can understand people who point to the rule book. I can understand I saw Mark Stafford on Twitter had broken down how long the Australians and or how long each each kick for touch had, had taken throughout the course of the match. Um, you know, clearly there was a lot of anger around um you know, the incident that saw Darcy Swain yellow carded for the, for that, that tackle or that clear out on Quintapaya. So all these different varying factors that contributed to to what was an amazing spectacle. I get all of that. And and I guess the frustration, you know, lies in the fact that you've got the ball, you know, just about to drop onto the boot, that you've got a situation where the player seemed genuinely bewildered, Bernard Foley, um, that he hadn't, he didn't understand that the pressure was on him at that second. He thought the time had been called off. Um, clearly, there were some issues for him being able to hear within the stadium. And it's one of those situations... I saw again. I saw something online. Um, you know, Nigel Owen said, "Look, by the letter of the law, great referee, of course. By the letter of the law, yes, he's he's called it as he's entitled to do." But I also saw somebody online make the point that it's almost certain that if Nigel Owens had been in that exact same position, he would have stopped play, gone over, explained to the guy, "You're being an absolute dimwit. Let's carry on. This is not acceptable. Put everyone on notice. Crack on." Because at the end of the day. I didn't see a guy who was desperately trying to milk every second in the hope that it would bring full time on quicker. I saw a guy who was trying to make sure he knew what he was doing in the high pressure, high tempo environment, possibly didn't hear the call that clearly. And I just think it's a really unfortunate way to finish what was a gripping test match. I know your SMS machine's probably lighting up with people over there telling me to get over it, accept the result. Well, I've done that, right? I understand that the All Blacks won. I understand that it's it's another year without the Bledisloe Cup, and this one's pretty painful. I understand that even had he kicked the ball into touch, there's every possibility, the way Falao Fainga had been throwing since he came on, that you guys steal the line out, score in the corner anyway. Further to that, I understand that we've got to go over to Eden Park this week and win, which we haven't done in, in over 30 years. So I appreciate that, you know, that moment didn't cost us from winning the Bledisloe Cup in, in those simple terms. But it was super disappointing and such a, a gutting way to, um, I guess, to, to finish what was such a gripping test match. Yeah, it's interesting you say all of that, Pete, because I thought, hand on heart, not, not wearing an all-black jersey or anything like that, watching that, when Bernard Foley gets turned around and said, I didn't hear you, I was like, mate, you are taking the mick. Because... The referee was still the same distance away from him as he was from the rest of the Australian backline. The rest of the Australian backline heard it, 
and they're all yelling at him to kick it out. So I think he was taking the mick. I think he was deliberately trying to trying to do that. Now, the fact that that call we've never seen made before to make it for the very first time at that point in a match is is tough to take. I get all of that because it shouldn't have been, you know, but if it does draw a line under that behaviour and from now on that's what we're going to see, then I'm all for it. Yeah, and look, I take that point as well. And it's impossible for any of us to say, you know, you take Bernard Foley on his word when he says the next day, I I didn't hear it, there was a misunderstanding. I I guess, again, my my theory is that this has not been a massive scourge on the game in in the same way that, say, we look at... um, you know, head-high tackles, or the same way that we look in the NRL at, you know, all the controversy at the moment around players milking penalties. Yes, we've been talking about ball in play. Yes, we've been talking about too many scrum resets and stoppages and things like that. But at no real point has it been a really common topic around rugby. Players are trying to delay play and time waste, you know, when they're kicking to touch at penalties. It just hasn't been a thing. So he might have he might have cured a, an illness that hadn't even been diagnosed yet in, in theory. And um, as I say, we move on. Um, we take the positives out of it. There were a hell of a lot of positives for the Wallabies to take from the performance. Um, and, and we head over to Auckland this week with a little bit more fire in the belly. Um, I didn't love some of that audio of Nick White speaking to the referee. I think we were raised that the referee's decision is always right. And at a certain point, um, you know, you need to, to show a level of respect. As I say, I, I thought Ian Foster's carry on, or the way he spoke after the game was, was pretty appalling, but that's kind of what we've come uh, become used to seeing from him. He doesn't necessarily carry himself in the same way as what we've traditionally seen from from All Blacks coaches and, and All Blacks personnel in the past. But gee, it lights the lights the fuse for a cracking match in Auckland this weekend. It does, it does. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Looking forward to seeing what the All Blacks do personnel-wise. Sam Kane, David Harvey with the 10-day protocol won't play, so there are going to be some changes to the All Blacks. Uh, a lot of people over here very dirty about Darcy Swain. You mentioned that in passing. I do a show on a Sunday called The Rugby Run. Steve Devine, the former All Black halfback, was with me this week. He said, and we also had Simon Poitivin on, uh, former Wallaby ca- uh, captain who, who mentioned it, uh, said it was the, the biggest piece of thuggery he's seen on a rugby field in four or five years because it was so deliberately trying to hurt an opponent. Uh, where are you on it and how long do you think you'll be gone for? Yeah, look, I, I, I can't disagree with that. It's really appalling. And, you know, you look at the fact that Quinn Tapia is going to be out for, what, a minimum of 12 weeks? Mm. You can make the argument that Darcy Swain shouldn't step on a rugby field until Quinn Tapia does. I mean, it, it goes completely against the moral compass of the game to target, um, you know, a, a defenceless player in that fashion. Really disappointing. We saw Darcy Swain, of course, get a red card during the England series for that headbutt on Johnny Hill in the first test. And, all the uh, you know the defence was it was so uncharacteristic and he'd been baited into it and and you know he'd never done anything like this before. Well, he's very quickly developing a bit of a rap sheet um, for for this type of, of behaviour that really lets his teammates down. I mean, he gets a red card there. It's pretty unlikely we're talking about the type of comeback that, that the Wallabies went on. So I look at the locking stocks. I think Darcy Swain's got to be very very careful. Um, that he doesn't you know, find himself out of contention for our Rugby World Cup place. Yes, he does a lot of things right at set piece. Yes, he's a promising young player. But, you know, you look at Matt Phillip, Rob Liotta, uh, Nick Frost, Rory Arnold, Caden Neville. You've got five fantastic locks there. You've got Jed Holloway covering lock as well. It's not a fait accompli that, that, that Darcy Swain is in that Rugby World Cup squad. And right now, if I'm Dave Rennie, I'm having serious trust issues with Darcy Swain. Mm, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, we uh, just had... 
uh, Hamish Spidwell on, who uh, is not an Ian Foster fan to the point that he was barracking for the Wallabies on the weekend, uh, on <laughs> last Thursday. Um, but even he said, uh, you know, Darcy Swain was just a walking red card. He was just giving away penalties all the time. He, everything he did on the field that night was thuggish. Yeah, and look, unfortunately, it's it's a bit of a sign of um, condescendence, which might be well intended. But I've got a number of Kiwi mates that live over this way who've all said the same thing. We're cheering for cheering for the Wallabies until Ian Foster gets the bump. So, um, yeah, look, I, I, I was really unimpressed with Darcy's fame. But as I say, I thought it was a, a, a fairly impressive Wallaby performance outside of that. I, I thought that the back row, um, you know, the... the the balance there seemed really spot on with Rob Liotta, Rob Valentini and Pete Samu. Three guys born in, in Melbourne, by the way, which is, is pretty incredible. Um, and really unfortunate to hear today that Rob Liotta's torn his Achilles. So he faces a, a big battle to be back for the Rugby World Cup. So thoughts are, are with Rob Liotta. But, um, you know, I, I thought the front row, um, I thought our guys took the points up front. I, I thought that, um, you know, clearly Bernard Foley um, hasn't lost, um, you know, some of his playmaking ability and his opportunity to... Um, to make that 10 jersey his own, um, you know, I think he did pretty well. And all of a sudden, you've got Noah Lolaseo trying to get back in the squad this week, returns from HIA protocols. You've got Hunter Paisami back from HIA protocols. Well, Lalakai Fakesi did very little wrong in that 12 jersey. Andrew Kellaway, the fire at fullback, wasn't he fantastic? So, as I say, lots of green shoots. What we've got to do is back it up. We haven't done that at all this year. You guys haven't either. If we look at that as your down week and our up week last week, then this could be dangerous over in Auckland. So I want to see as much continuity as we can in that Wallaby team selection. Hopefully, James Slipper will be okay to play through the old man's calf injury. But I believe uh, Angus Bell is back in the mix, who, who really excites us, who are fans of the dark arts of the scrum. So hopefully we see minimal changes and only those injury-enforced ones for the Wallabies. And, and we go over there and give it a real crack in your neck of the woods. Yeah, good stuff, Pete. All right, mate, always good to catch up with you. We'll uh, talk again next week and we'll uh, maybe talk some NRL and AFL as well. Pete Fairburn with us out of Australia for our chat with West Island. It is 10 away from 8 here on SENZ. It's six away from eight here on SENZ. Had a text through. Uh, G'day, mate. Rennie said there was nothing wrong with Darcy Swain's tackle because he was neck-rolled previously. Hey, what? That's cheers, Gary. Yeah, no, great call, Gary. Um, There's the old saying that two wrongs don't make a right. You remember that? Just because he... I mean, I don't remember him being neck-rolled. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But uh, regardless, even if he was neck-rolled... What's deliberately targeting a guy's knee and dropping all your weight on it and busting his knee and putting him out of action for, I think, 12 weeks is generous. Um, I don't see how that's okay then. Um, if Ren said that, then he needs to give himself an uppercut. I'm not sure what he's on about. That's, uh, that's a poor takeaway, I think, a poor takeaway. But you can keep your texts coming through. Double eight, double three. Uh, now, at 8.30, Justin Nelson is going to come on. You know him probably as uh, the former GM of the Sales NBL and now a basketball commentator. He's been a basketball commentator for a long time. Before he was a basketball commentator uh, over in Aussie, he used to be an AFL commentator and the AFL Grand Final's coming up. So he's coming on to give us a bit of education around the AFL, uh, around the game itself. It's something that I haven't uh, really put a lot of time into personally. I did sit down to watch, I think it was Carlton St Kilda when they had that first game at the Caketon and fell asleep on the couch, which was indicative of me not really understanding the game, I think, probably more than anything. So hopefully Justin will be able to give us a bit more understanding ahead of the weekend's grand final. If you've got a question around AFL for Justin at 8.30, get it through to us on double eight double three double eight double three. 
is the text number. Uh, get your question through for Justin. Between now and then, though, we're going to talk Wellington winning the Rand Furley Shield. Xavier Numi is going to join us, a big part of that uh, team that won the Shield. And we'll also catch up with Kevin here and talk a little bit of Heartland rugby as well. All of that coming up between 8 and 9 here on SENZ Extra Time. Kennedy signs. We go to Flanders again. It's won by Wellington. Thrilling contest. No quarter asked or given over the course of the 83 minutes. They celebrate, they get this ball out in the Rand Fairly Shield. We'll be going to Wellington. Our Rand Fairly Shield is well and truly ensconced in Wellington. Good luck getting it back. You'll need several crowbars, I'd imagine. Uh, was a long time between drinks. Uh, Xavier Numi is part of the team that's won it. He joins us now out of uh, the capital. G'day, Xavier. How you doing? Hey, mate. Good, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. How was the party at the Plymouth Rugby Club after that? Um, yeah, I was pretty good. I was coming back home on, on the bus with uh, the Shield on the bus. And, um, yeah, no, it was good coming back home to a few of the fans. So, yeah, no, that was, that was good. Yeah, I mean, what did it mean to you guys as a collective? I know you're a St. Pat's Town boy. You're a Wellington boy through and through. I think last time Wellington held the Shield, you were like eight years old. So so what does it mean to you and, and, and the group to, to get the Shield back? Um, yeah, I can say that it probably means a lot. I can definitely say that it's um, a big highlight of my career so far. So um, to be able to hold it, um, at this stage of my career, I'm pretty grateful for that. Where I think TJ and Julian Salvia took them maybe around 13 years to be able to touch it. So, um, yeah, I could probably say that's definitely a highlight of my career. So, yeah. I suppose that, that highlights it, doesn't it? When you've got guys, you know, who are veterans of the team and guys you would have looked up to as a young guy coming into the squad and people like Julian Salvia and TJ Piranata, and you look at them and they go, they've never won it before. That, that, that kind of highlights just how, how special it is. Yeah, no, that definitely highlights uh, how special it is. You know, we've got um, young bucks, the likes of Peter Laikai, uh, Riley Higgins, uh, Keelan Whitman, who's it's, uh, only it's their first year, second years, and they've already held the Renfrewly Shield. So, um, yeah, I can definitely say we're pretty fortunate and, and grateful yeah. and lucky to be able to hold the Shield this early on in the career. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely, mate, definitely. And, and kind of uh, had a bit of a fairy tale feel to it as well, given that it was uh, Wellington's 100th Renfrewly Shield game. Yeah, um, I, yeah. We had a meeting last week about it earlier in the week, and to be honest, I, to be honest, I didn't really um, know that it was the hundredth Shield game. So um, I think it's always a rivalry between Wellington and Hawks Bay. So I think the last time we had a Shield challenge was back in 2020, and it didn't go away. So um, to go away this time was probably yeah, it was an unreal feeling. Yeah, mate, a fantastic feeling. And I, I, now, now the job is you got to defend it, right? You got to hold on to it. Um, yeah, I, I know. Having talked to a few of the Hawks Bay boys over the the tenure, they always they always see it as you have to go out and win it every time. It's not defending; you have to actually go out and win it every time, and that's the mindset that they've always had. Does it make it a little bit easier that your first defence is against Waikato? I know they're a very good team, 
but they're, they're also a rival in the you know in the in the title race as well. And uh, so this has got double meaning. So does it make it a little bit easier to get up for? You got two reasons to beat them. Um, yeah, I, that's um, never easy. You know, losing or winning, um, especially having the of uh, the shield now. I think it's given the boys uh, extra motivation, especially it being our first. Um, defend in what since 2008. So yeah, I think with the boys will go out there and um, embrace the challenge and walk towards it. Um, no doubt this week will be a good week, getting over our roles and making sure we get on top of what we need to to be on on game day. So yeah. Have you, have you noticed? Um, I, I know it's only been you know a couple of days, but you you were at the um, Paramata. Uh, Plymouth and Rugby Club um, after the bus trip. Uh, no doubt you've heard from people. You would have uh, got some feedback from mates and, cl- and, and old club mates and schoolmates and things. But, I mean, I get the feeling that you're going to get a massive turnout, you know, by NPC standards this weekend. Um, that crowd could be, I guess, the 16th man for you. Yeah, well, that's what we're hoping, um, especially it being our last home game for the season and, and it being the, our first shield. Uh, defend. Um, I think Wellington have already started promoting our game this week, so I think the more we can get, the better it will be for us. Like you said before, having 16 players pretty much, so um, the crowd will definitely play a big part. Yeah, well, I mean, you'd think so, mate. There'll be a, there'll be a lot of those Wellington rugby fans that uh, that, that haven't seen a shield uh, shield defence. Uh, given the last one was in 2008, so every every reason to turn up and and support your boys, support the Lions. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a big occasion, uh, Xavier. And uh, I guess you get this one one, and you can park it. You can you know put it in the trophy cabinet for the uh, for the rest of the season, and then just worry about winning the Bunnings NPC title. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Just making sure that we can defend it this week and lock it away for the season. So. Um... Yeah, because we're going to treat it like it's final, but you know, it's also like it's another game as well to play. Um, don't want to really overthink stuff. So I think the main thing is just making sure that you know the boys can you know don't get complacent or you know don't think too far ahead, but just walking towards this week, week by week, and just making sure we do what we got to do, like every other game. It's funny. I, I I was looking at the team. I think it might have been your storm week, um, and I was looking at the team that was named. The squad came out, and I had to go and see Mark Stafford out in the office. And I said, "Mate, have have you have you seen the Wellington team?" And he's like, "No." And I said, "I feel like I've been in a time warp. I feel like I'm 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 looking at a rugby team from ten years ago because the back reserves on your bench." With TJ Peronada, Julian Savi, and Nehemil Nascutter, <laughs> I was just like, "Hang on a minute, what's going on here?" I mean, how how good is it being having that experience and having those guys to to train with and play with and have them as teammates for you? Who how old are you? Twenty two, twenty three? Just you know, young fella finding your feet in a professional game. Yeah, no, it's 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 awesome having those players like that on um on your side of the team and you know whether they're starting or on the bench or in the environment. I think it's great for the young boys, especially on the field where, you know, they can lead us around the field or off the field, um, especially if the young boys need a handle something or whatnot, then, you know, it's always good to have experience like that, to, um, to ask questions and, and to always get better from that. So, no, nah, it's definitely um, something that the boys don't take take for granted. And um, I know for, for a fact that a lot of the boys love having those boys, um, their childhood heroes in the environment and rubbing shoulders with them.
Yeah, it's a good young team too, man. You've got some really good young players. Aiden Morgan, I, I know he stepped up during the Super Rugby season for Wellington, and, and Ruben Love's been around for a couple of years now, but still pretty young guy. It's good to have them in, in, in the uh, in the team and, and contributing the way they are, mate. So uh, things are looking, looking pretty rosy for, for Wellington Rugby at the moment and for the Canes. Yeah, yeah. We've definitely got um, a lot of players to watch out for with big futures. So, you know, it's um, it's been awesome to have yeah, like you said, players like uh, Aidan Morgan and Ruben Love, who have got bright futures ahead of them. You know, another one, like I said before, was uh, Peter Larkai, mm. uh, Riley Higgins. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of talent around Wellington at the moment. Um, but, yeah, like I said, it's just for, for game time, just making sure we take it week by week and, and just doing what we can to um, get the boys ready for, for game day. Yeah, mate. Well, best of luck this weekend, eh? Uh, I wish you all the best in, 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 your, in your first defence of the Ranfurly Shield uh, against your divisional rivals in, in Waikato. What a big game it is, mate. I, uh, I hope you go well uh, and enjoy the experience, and I hope you got you know as close to a full house as you can get there for the game as well. Yeah, no, we'll definitely, we'll definitely be a great challenge to be a part of, a great occasion, so yeah, can't wait for it, eh? Yeah. Uh, go well, Xavier. All the best, man. Thanks very much for giving us some time tonight. No, thanks very much. Cheers. Yeah, any time, man. Any time. Uh, yeah, big part of uh, that Wellington team. Uh, Xavier Numia, the prop, of course. Uh, and that game was one up front, wasn't it? The uh, uh, That Rear and Philly Shield game. So, uh, yeah, great to chat to him. And looking forward to that game. Uh, Wellington Waikato this weekend is one of the standout games in the Bunnings NPC. When we come back, we're going to catch up with Kevin here and talk some Heartland Rugby. 14 past eight here on SENZ. This is Extra Time with Ricardo Paul joining us now from rugbyheartland.co.nz. is Kevin here. G'day, Kevin. How are you? Good evening, Ricardo. I'm glad the music still rings in my ears lovely. Yeah, mate. Good, good. I'm glad you're happy. Because I, I, first question has to be uh, for you is uh, West Coast still your uh, favourites to win the Meads Cup? Nah, I'm eating my hat. It went well with uh, a bit of salt and pepper. And uh, But hey, they could still make a Lahore semi-final. There's still plenty of time for them to be there. But uh, at the moment, no, I've still got a couple of, uh, well, two or three. Mid-Canterbury are still in the hunt. But uh, yeah, no, I don't know what's happened with West Coast. They've imploded this year, unfortunately. Yeah, they've, they've really fallen off a cliff, mate. I mean, you know... I you follow this a lot more clo- a lot more closely. You know the ins and outs a lot more than I do. So when you gave me the tip about West Coast at the beginning of the season, I was really interested to see how they they went because you know it's always good to have a story where you get a team like that who isn't one of the usuals. You know the South Canterburys or the Fonganuis that, that that go well. But um, what do you think it is that, that that hasn't quite clicked for them this season so far? Oh, it's, well, they've just had a a bad uh, flip of the coin, really. I mean, they 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 could have taken the victory over East Coast last weekend. Um, they came up against a determined Buller side the, uh, last week in the Rundle Cup. Um, they've been, I mean, they've, fought, they've they've had five losses, but they've got five points. You know, that's how close it's been. Um, they just haven't had the the, the rub of the green. No, no, I think that's uh, that's an understatement by the by the sounds of things, mate. But a team that has <laughs> definitely had the rub of the green is South Canterbury. They are five wins from five matches. They've got four bonus points as well. They're looking uh, pretty good, and uh, they depul- uh, demolished the poor old wider upper bush on the weekend. They certainly did. I already had ambulances on order before the game. Uh, I just knew that was going to be a, a, a slaughter. 
Um, and, and that's no disrespect to Wairapa Bush, but, I mean, they're right there with West Coast. Um, you know, they're having a horror season themselves. And But um, no, South Canterbury, uh, I mean, they're at 16 straight now. Um, so they've still got a few more games to go to break Wanganui's record, though, of 21 in a row Heartland games. So, um, yeah, it's South Canterbury are, are looking good for another final in Timaru. Yeah, they are. They're looking. I mean, when you consider that win streak includes a win over Whanganui as well, right? Uh, yeah, it was the first time they'd uh, beaten Whanganui in um, in Whanganui uh, a couple of weeks ago, and also the um, they've won. Oh, I think it's two in a row now. Uh, against Wanganui, so that's the first time they've done that in the Heartland uh, era. So yeah, no, they they've had the the oh, the luxury of everything's just going their way. Injuries are, are good. They've had good grounds. They've they've just everything's clicking for them. Whereas Wanganui and that they've had you know really bad grounds playing on it recently with the muddy grounds. But South Canterbury are just they've just seemed to have a a straight line. You know, uh, look at the finish line. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, they're, they're looking good. They're top by uh, on 24 points, followed by Wanganui, who are on uh, 21 points in second. And then Thames Valley on 20. They've only lost once this season, Thames Valley. And another big win for them away at Buller too. Uh, you know, Buller are a team who are there or thereabouts. Three wins, two losses. But boy, their two losses have been big, haven't they? They certainly have. I mean, I, I did say when I mentioned West Coast at the start, if you want to go back and check the records, I said the dark horse this year would be Buller. Mm. And uh, at the moment, they fly my flag, so go Buller boys. Um, their loss against North Otago by 71 to 10 uh, is a bit more put in perspective now after North Otago's impressive win over Horofanua Kapiti last weekend um, when we saw Ben McCarthy break the... Um, the record for most points in a Heartland game, 29. He got one try and 12 conversions. So, And uh, he didn't even have a guy with socks on uh, put him off. So that was great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, North Otago, big win, 89-23. They have scored in five games 247 points. Um, when you consider they've actually lost two of their five games, the fact that they're for and against is the best of the competition at plus 133 is a lot, doesn't it? It certainly does. I mean, you know, they've got a big game this weekend up at uh, Mercury Bay in, in Thames, a special weekend up there for the Mercury Bay Rugby Club, and uh, they'll be hosted by by the Swamp Foxes. And so we've got last week we had third versus uh, fourth, and again we've got another third versus fourth. So um, that's uh, going to be a huge game. Thames Valley still celebrating their centenary, and uh, North Otago, I believe, will be playing in their blue jerseys. Um, so that'll be something different to look at. But uh, no, that that game there, I still think it's going to be a flip of the coin. Um, so, yeah, whoever wins that will will be in the running for Meads Cup. Now, we, uh, we've we got eight eight full rounds, right, before we go into the uh, into the into the Lahore Cup, Meads Cup, etc. Uh, the top four, with North Otago currently in fourth, uh, two points clear of Buller, and then you've got three points back to Nati Pro, who East Coast are at a great story in themselves, and Mid Canterbury on 14, then Horafanua Carpeti on 13, uh, King Country just a little bit back from them on 10. Do you think that top four is the top four we're going to get? No. Um, no, I mean, literally, um, we've got the big game this weekend, which is on the TV, which is King Country East Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more win will give East Coast their best season since 2012. 
Uh, they they had three wins last year. They're on three wins this year. Uh, they've got a bit of an easier run home uh, with King Country, and um, and then next week they've got Wairapa Bush at home defending the Bill Oldsbourne. Uh, and then literally, unfortunately for them, they have to travel down to uh, play South Canterbury. So um, you know which way that's probably going to head. Uh, it will be the upset of the century if, if they get that win in the final round. But um, they, they, if they can pick up 10 points in these next two games, or even eight points, that, that will uh, push them up, uh, up a place, a few places. Um, I think, though, mid-Canterbury, they may come back. They, they, they were interesting, but definitely um, I, I still think the top two locked in, three, four, and five, and even, as I said, throw East Coast in the mix, six, uh, they, they're the four teams battling out the um, away semi-finals in Meads Cup. Mm, yeah, what about Hotter Whenua Kapiti? I, I look at them. I mean, they they, they got tanked 89, 80, uh, sorry, eighty nine twenty three as we mentioned, but they have mm-hmm. won three games and lost two of their five. Yet they've only got one bonus point, so they sit behind Mid Canterbury, who have only won twice. Um, so uh, Hotter Whenua Kapiti is smoky still. Do you think? Uh, it's a bit rough. I mean, um, they're, I mean, they're hosting Mid Canterbury this week, and Mid Canterbury do travel well, and so they, they um, in, in history, uh, so they'll be um, they've got a tough game there, and then they um, have to host Wanganui in round seven, and then in round eight they're looking at um, uh, going travelling up to Thames and playing Thames. So they're going to find these next three rounds quite hard, I think, and uh, they might pick up one win, but. I still, they'll be there about sort of Hawke Cup, but I can't see them getting near Meade's uh, contention. Okay, and uh, what about a couple other teams I think that deserve a shout? Poverty Bay are, are one and four, uh, but they're a lot better than that, aren't they? Uh, I mean, they only just lost to Wanganui by eight points. And then King yep. Country as well, who I think, you know, when we talked at the beginning uh, of the season, we expected them to be where they were last season, which was right down the bottom, but they've been better than that as well. Oh, certainly. I mean, King Country um, had a great win down at Ashburton in the weekend, and with them, you know, also celebrating their centenary, they've got a good run home. I mean, normally you'd say, oh, okay, we've got East Coast this weekend, but they know they're in for a tough game. Uh, And then following that, they um, are travelling down to Westport to take on Buller. So that could be the the crunch match there uh, to to decide who goes where because I think the winner of that Buller King Country next week um, will be a deciding factor of where these teams all line up near the end. Yeah, well, it's developing quite nicely with three rounds to go. Uh, Now, I know that you've talked about King Country East Coast uh, being the TV game, but I mean, it really does look like that Thames Valley North Otago game is going to be the game of the round, isn't it? Oh, it's a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, the the, the winner of this uh, can sort of maybe put their, you know, maybe rest a couple of players going into these final few rounds, whereas the other one will have a lot of teams. You know, if, if Buller um, can get up, <laughs> do the impossible and get up over Wanganui, they're there about. Um, East Coast, if they can get up over King Country, they're thereabouts. So, yeah, so the t- um, either Thames or North Otago will have two or three teams. I mean, North Otago, in theory, could end up being in fourth place this weekend and finishing the weekend in eighth. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that'll be a huge yeah. shake-up if, if that happens. So still a long way to go is what you're saying, Kevin. It's it's, it's not cut and dried yet, uh, that's, that top four and then the uh, and then fifth to eight. So the the, Mahi, the, uh, the Meads and the Lahore Cup places all still up to grip for grabs with uh, just three rounds left. 
Oh, definitely. And I mean, the only team that I'd probably put a, a, a scratch through would be, unfortunately, Wairapa Bush. They're just too far behind now. Even if they pick up 15 points, that only gives them 17. But uh, every other team above them will be winning. So um, I think Wairapa Bush would just need to go back to the drawing board and uh, get ready for 2023. Yeah, all right. It's going to be our season. They're going to start sounding like Warriors fans, aren't they? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I said that for the but, benefit uh, of Ben Francis, still, but he didn't. He didn't acknowledge it. He's, he's just. He's yeah, over well, me more Yeah, I'm still. I'm, I'm. I've still got my my hat on West Coast though to be in the Lahore Cup. So come on, mighty red and white, get up and uh, make me look good. Make you look good. Well, <laughs> they do have the bush this weekend down on the coast, so they should probably. Uh, they should probably break that duck. You would think uh, this weekend the battle of the two yeah. teams uh, without a win. As of yet. Good stuff, Kevin. Thanks very much for coming on, mate. Go well. Cheers. Talk to you next week. Will do. Uh, there you go, Kevin, here from rugbyheartland.co.nz. That is his website uh, and really detailed breakdown of all the games and the tables. A uh, bunch of stuff on the NPC, the Ranfurly Shield, the Farah Palmer Cup, as well. Anything you want to know about rugby in New Zealand, you can find it there at rugbyheartland.co.nz. So we appreciate Kevin coming on and giving us his insight and, uh, you know, talking about uh, the game at that grassroots level. It is 25 past eight here on SENZ. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little AFL. If you've got any questions about AFL and how it works, get them into us now, double eight, double three, because Justin Nelson is going to educate me and you. It's bang on 8.30 here on SENZ Extra Time with Ricardo Ball through till uh, well, 9 o'clock. Then uh, Ben Francis takes over with At The Oki. We'll do darts for an hour before we hit tennis with Brett Phillips at 10 o'clock tonight. Uh, joining us now, uh, though, to educate me on uh, the game that is AFL is Justin Nelson. Uh, g'day, Justin. How are you doing? Hi, good evening. I'm well and... Some classic Aussie music to bring us into talking about Aussie rules. I love it. Yeah, mate, it's it's uh, it's got to be done. It's got to be done now. I, I will preface this this chat by saying uh, I don't really know anything about Aussie rules. Um, I could <laughs> I could make a gag about you know how you get a point for missing, but I, you've probably heard that before. Um, what I did do once was when Wellington did a deal with St Kilda to have three home games uh, hosted in Wellington. The first one I thought, okay, well, if this is going to get a, a foothold here, I will sit down and I will clear the house, make the family go out, and I will watch this game and I will figure it all out and see what it's all about. And I fell asleep in the second quarter. Um, so, <laughs> um, and that, that you know, that, that was just me going, maybe because I didn't understand it properly. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it might have been because it was St Kilda versus Carlton as well. Uh, you probably have some thoughts on that, Justin. But uh, <laughs> where should we start? Well, truth be known, it could have been because you had a very hard night the night before. <laughs> so, but anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs> uh, look, it's, um, it, it is a little bit surprising that, that the game hasn't, taken off uh, as big as you know certainly what's experienced through the through the southern states of Australia in, in particular I mean from Melbourne the likes of Auckland and Wellington are, are pretty much closer than Perth but look what I can say is is over in Australia it, it is the biggest ticket in town it is the biggest game I know there's a lot of NRL fans here in in New Zealand you know NRL has um, a a pretty good position uh, in Queensland and, and New South Wales, although the uh, AFL code is growing there rapidly, um, really, really quickly. Uh, but across those southern states, 
you know, especially, you know, Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria and, and, and Tasmania, AFL is incredibly strong. And as, as we're about to see this week, you know, the, the Sydney Swans are into another grand final. They really have been one of the powerhouses over the last two decades. Uh, so the game is alive and well in Sydney. Saturday night against the Magpies, the Swans got up by a point. 46,000 people packed in to the Sydney Cricket Ground. And uh, they're about to head into a grand final, up to 100,000 expected at the MCG this Saturday in Melbourne to take on Geelong, another powerhouse over the last two decades. It's, uh, it's going to be a really good grand final. When was the last time, and it, you, you, forgive me for not knowing the answer to this because it's probably recently, but when was the last time you had an AFL grand final without a Melbourne team in it? Oh, no, it happens regularly. It's, it's not an uncommon thing. Um, it, it happens very regularly these days. Of course, there's two teams... In the 18-team competition, there's two teams based out of Western Australia, two teams out of South Australia, Adelaide, uh, and uh, and two teams in, in Sydney and two teams up in Queensland, in, in Brisbane and on the, the Gold Coast. So it's not an uncommon thing these days. The interstate teams have been very, very dominant uh, over the you know 30-odd years of what is now the AFL. Uh, and the AFL was born out of the VFL, the Victorian Football League, back in the... Uh, up until the late 80s, uh, early 90s, the Sydney Swans, uh, as they are today, actually started as South Melbourne. They were a Melbourne-based team up until 1981 when they shifted north due to financial uh, problems and became the Sydney Swans in 1982. Uh, and that was probably the start of becoming a national competition back then. So it's been going for a while. What do I need to know as somebody who's new to the sport, doesn't know it, doesn't, you know, I mean, I know it gets played on cricket grounds. It's a big oval. It's, it seems to be quite a lot of space. Um, there's quite a few people out there. Uh, what, what are the basics? What do I need to know to understand what I'm watching? Yeah, look, the basics, 18 players on each team on the ground at any one time. Each team also has four substitutions. Uh, those players can come on and off the ground. All the players can come on and off the ground at any time. And each team, I think the rule now is each team's allowed 80 changes per game. Uh, so it is very, very hectic. The game doesn't stop for a change. It's rolling substitutions. Uh, it is frantic side points. The game itself is, is four 20-minute quarters with the clock stopping. So each quarter generally goes for about 28 to 31 minutes, depending on how uh, many goals have been scored. Six points for a goal, one point for a behind, which uh, is either side of the big stick, so to speak. A goal, the six-pointer is through the big sticks. Uh, although if, a, if a, a goal or a kick for goal is touched and still goes through the big sticks, that's a point as well. Um, Probably the other thing uh, that is of note for absolute beginners is this is a, a 360 game. So you can go forwards, backwards, sideways, um, by hand or by foot. And then on top of that, you know, much to the disdain of fans at the best of times, there's a whole myriad of other rules as well. But they're probably the basics. Okay, okay. And, and what about positionally? I mean, there's 18 blokes on the field. I mean... I know they don't have scrums and things, but so what are, what are the different positions doing? How many positions are there? Yeah, so six players start as, as forwards, six players start as defenders, and six players start uh, as what we would call midfielders or across the centre of the ground. In that big square that exists uh, in the middle of the ground, 
when there's a, a ball up, you can have four players in there and then you have uh, one player on what we would call one wing and one player on the other wing and then six players forward and six players back. It actually, the game today has a 6 6 6 set to start with. So players actually have to start in their designated zones. And then as soon as that ball uh, gets tossed up or, or bounced down in the middle, uh, it's on for young and old. It, look, it's a very, very athletic game. You know, some of these players are running 20 plus kilometres a game. Uh, you, you do need to be an athlete. It's a different body type uh, to what. Uh, Kiwis would, would you know see in rugby, for instance. Um, these are very athletic players. You do have you know your more you know heavier set uh, midfielders. You know they can sort of be around that six foot to, to six foot three range. Even some midfielders these days are nudging six four, which is quite remarkable. Um, but very athletic game. I think anyone who does sit down and, and watch Aussie Rules, almost to your point. You know, when you watched it all those years ago, it's it's frantic. It just doesn't stop. I've also heard a term, and maybe you can clarify this because I assumed it was a position, but what's a ruckman? <laughs> so the ruckman is generally the biggest player in in a team, and the ruckman is the player that jumps up at the, uh, at the ball up uh, or the bounce down in the middle of the ground. Uh, and, and they're the player that, that jumps up trying to get their hand on the ball. It's, it's 1v1. Uh, and they're trying to knock it down to their to their on ballers or their their midfielders, uh, which are usually you know the more nuggety rovers and and, and ruck rovers, uh, those midfield players. So that's the ruckman. There's there's a there's one that goes up for each team every time uh, the game does stop. And you know probably the one thing that that sets the AFL apart in terms of the speed of the game is when there is a stoppage, it restarts really, really quickly, uh, which, of course, is a bit of a gripe these days in uh, in rugby, for instance, where it tends to stop for a while. Yeah, it does, mate. It just stops for a long time. Uh, now, I, I did play a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, I did play a season of Gaelic football. And from my understanding, Aussie rules is kind of related, although Gaelic football is more like soccer football than, than it is Aussie rules, I suppose. Um, how close are those two games? Oh, look, I mean, there are some similarities, probably related as much as, you know, me and your sister, for instance. So I mean, it, it is separate at the end of the day. I'm not sure if you've got a sister, by the way, but you have now. Um, it, it round ball, oval ball, you know, you can move by foot and by hand. So there are some similarities. Um, the, the goal set up in the field set up isn't, you know, overly dissimilar. Gaelic is, is more on the rectangular field, whereas obviously um, Aussie Rules is on an oval. Uh, so there are some similarities, but both games, you know, have evolved and uh, have their own, you know, position. I think the other thing that's quite remarkable about AFL is there's 1.2 million paid members of AFL teams. So these are people you know, that pay big money to reserve their seat for the home and away season doesn't always guarantee them a ticket to, to a final. Uh, there's 1.2 million, uh, which is quite remarkable. What, what's that? One in 20, one in 22 people in Australia is actually a fully paid up annual member of an Australian Wolves team. It is very, very tribal and is worth a lot of money. The, the most current TV deal that they've just signed 
uh, which is is the next passage of their broadcast rights, was worth $4.5 billion. So there's a lot of people that follow it, and uh, there's a lot of people who pay money for it. All right. Well, I know that you're a Sydney Swans fan, and uh, and I also know that you're from Melbourne. So I, I take that you were a South Melbourne fan and just went went with them. Yeah, I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, and I actually lived uh, over the back fence of a, a former South Melbourne player by the name of Mark Browning, um, a, a, a left footer, halfback flanker, great defender, had a, a very um, uh, star-studded, illustrious career. Uh, with South Melbourne, and and as a young fella, uh, he was living with his uh, with his mum and dad um, over the back fence. And uh, once I found out that there was a, a footballer who lived over the back fence, I literally constantly kicked my football over the back fence so I could run around to his house, knock on the front door, and ask him to go and get it. And and that's how I became a South Melbourne supporter. I would have only been probably five or six at the time, and. Um, uh, started following South Melbourne because because of the neighbour, and uh, yeah, 1981 they packed up stumps and and uh, the end of 1981 packed up stumps under financial pressure and moved to Sydney and I think at that time you know I was probably only about nine or ten and uh, yeah I was just passionate about it. You really are born into the game uh, in Australia and I was I was that passionate about the the red and white the bloods and just didn't want to give them up. So I became a Sydney Swan supporter overnight. Uh, now, so, I mean, you know, if we're talking about, I know a few Kiwis that have been to Melbourne, and, and, you know, it seems to be if you go and live over there, you have to have a team. Like, not supporting an AFL team over there means, you you, you know, you basically can't have conversations with people uh, to some extent. Um, so if, if you get... No, it's, very, it's, it's, it's very, very true. What, what you're saying is very true. You can't go into a workplace or into a bar or something like that uh, without having a team, because invariably, when you're meeting somebody for the first time, the first question will be, who do you barrack for? Right. And if I said Manchester United, they'd look at me blankly? <laughs> the conversation wouldn't last too long, put it that way. Right. Um, but mind you, there's some unbelievable rivals, especially in Melbourne, where 10 of the 18 teams are based. I mean, that is quite remarkable for a national competition in itself. But as soon as you start talking Carlton and Collingwood in particular, mm. Essendon, Richmond, really big Melbourne-based teams, uh, you know, the, the banter and the warfare uh, is on in a major, major way. So, I mean, if, if, if you're going to get into this game and you're going to pick a team, how do, how do you reckon people should go about deciding who they're going to follow? Well, most people who come into it for the first time, you know, ask you who's on top of the ladder and that's the team they start following. You know, I think Hawthorne over the, the glory years of, you know, the, the, the 2010 to 2018, probably 2008 to 2018, um, you know, they, they had a really good sustained run. So there's a lot of, you know, new Hawthorne supporters that have come out of that. Um, yeah, I, I think it is about success if you're new to the game, but it can also be about the fandom and the, and the colours. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people overseas internationally who support the Sydney Swans because, you know, they know Sydney as a destination city. So that tends to be a team that they jump on as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like, I I met a guy who was living here uh, from Australia um, who was a big St Kilda fan, so big, in fact, Maltese geezer. He, he had the, they call them a Guernsey, don't they, rather than a jersey or a shirt. Is that right? 
Guernsey? It used to be, yeah, it used to be called a Guernsey. You probably called a jumper these days. But, yeah. You know, in the day it was a Guernsey, yeah. Yeah, he had the, his whole back was tattooed like he was wearing a St Kilda uh, jersey. Um, so he's a big, he's a big. So I remember talking to him about it. And when I was a kid growing up here, much like um, the reason I support the Parramatta Eels in rugby league is because when I was a kid, we only got it once, maybe once a year on a Sunday. You get the highlights of the grand final, and invariably at that time, uh, early eighties, it was always the Bulldogs and the Eels, and, and you know uh, Peter Sterling and Brett Kenny looked pretty exciting. So I ended up supporting them. Um, from an AFL point of view, it always seemed to be you know the blokes and the crunchy rappers when I was a kid as well were were were, uh, were the team doing pretty well, old, old Hawthorne. So um, yeah, I, su- I, su- I suppose that's that's kind of how you got to go. It's either a, a family connection or or a memory, right? Yeah, it is, and and definitely from a from a supporter um, you know viewpoint, family is very very strong. So. Yeah, there's, there's great stories that and, and fantastic yarns over the years that do the rounds. You, you know, if you if you support a different team to to your old man, or you know, you you, you invariably uh, have to eat dinner in another room or uh, sleep outside. And it sounds strange and weird saying that, but I'll tell you what: there's been a lot of family arguments over the years at dinner tables uh, when it comes to, to AFL. Um, it's not unlike. You know, other sports, I, I guess they're pretty much the same. But the AFL, especially with 10 teams based in Melbourne, uh, has built up just an incredible uh, rivalry. And, you know, you've only got to look at the numbers that turn up to games. This week's grand final at the MCG on Saturday, uh, it'll nudge 100,000. It's it's quite remarkable. Home and away games, um, you know, regularly are up over 70, 80, 90,000. And that's just for a regular home and away game. Yeah, it's crazy, mate. It's crazy. Now, I, I, uh, let's talk about the grand final because I, I suppose the other thing that AFL have over NRL at the moment is they've listened to the fans and the final is at 2.30 on a Saturday afternoon in Melbourne. Um, so you're not up to stupid o'clock if you're on this side of the ditch watching it and you probably don't have to sit, <laughs> sit through Phil Gould pretending he's Russell Crowe and Gladiator either. <laughs> Look, it, it, it is probably one of the things that the AFL has got right over the last five to ten years, they've really taken on a mantra of listening to the fans, of going and talking to them, surveying them, you know, really um, digging deep into what the fans want. Uh, and they're delivering a product based on what the fans want. They've put the fans at the middle of the decisions that they're making. And it's made for a really exciting product. I mean, there's a lot of people in the media this year that are calling the AFL uh, 2022 season, the best ever. Just the style of the game, the speed of the game, the high scoring, you know, the stars and the way the teams and players are connecting with the community and just, just the whole event package, the show that they're putting on for the fans. So it is a strength. Um, at, at the same time, uh, you know, it, it, it generates a lot of money. It's, it's one of those competitions that is very firmly focused on revenue as well. I mean, these teams, these big clubs turn over a lot of dollars. Uh, so it's a big business. Yeah, massive business, mate, massive business. It's, it's huge. I mean, one thing that I have heard that the AFL did this year, which I really liked, was, um, you know, and we saw this, I, I guess, it, it, they made the point around uh, Penrith, and the NRL, with a round to go, had already won the minor premiership. They had nothing to play for, and they rested something like 14 frontline players for the last game of the season, um, which could have had a knock-on effect, you know, in, in the rest of the ladder and you know, top four, etc., uh, depending on the draw. 
Uh, but the AFL don't do that. They give everybody a week off after the regular season is finished. So there is no point in doing it. Um, and then they doubled that by saying, well, you know what, if we're going to have a week of no AFL, let's put AFLW launch week in the week when there's no men's games at all. So all the focus goes on the women's game. Um, I thought that was incredibly clever and something the NRL could probably learn from. Yeah, they, they, look, they've really evolved the way in which they do their business. The, the reason why that uh, buy came in or that week off came in after the regular season before uh, the finals started is very similar to what you, you know, you've seen in the NRL. A number of years ago, I think it was North Melbourne, uh, heading into the finals, literally rested half of their team, if not more, going into the final game of their regular season. They couldn't move anywhere on the ladder. Uh, so they just rested them all, and it was a bit of a farce, um, much what you're describing at the moment. And they actually changed it. They went for that buy-in between and cleaned all of that up. But a masterstroke this year, getting the AFL women to start in that week. AFL women's in its seventh season, and there's more than 600,000 girls who now play the game around the country. It, it is an incredible rise uh, in that particular, um, in, in, in AFL women in the particular game, uh, right across the suburbs and the regions, uh, across a number of city centres. All 18 AFL teams, now men's teams, this year for the first time also have an AFL women's team. So 18 teams play in the national competition, live television coverage, lots of media, good crowds going and attending, and as you said, a masterstroke to actually start the season during that bye weekend this year.